0: Jesus only, Jesus ever, Jesus all in all we sing. Savior, sanctifier, healer, glorious Lord and coming. everybody doing today? Fantastic. Wonderful. Amen. Thank you so much, worship team, for leading us this morning in uh, inspiring worship to praise Jesus. Uh, If you are new here or you don't know who I am, my name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors that serves here at Seven Oaks, and uh, it's a delight to welcome you here today. And hello to our online community as well. Uh, Glad that you're with us and uh, joining us wherever you are. Um, We are into a new series this morning that I'm going to speak about in just a moment. Uh, Before I do, though, uh, there's just something I'd like to share with you, uh, an announcement for this coming week. Over the last uh, number of years, we have held around this time of year an evening service uh, during the week, uh, which is a candlelight memorial service. Uh, And the reason we've done that is because uh, Christmas can be a really hard season for many people, particularly those who have lost A loved one. And so, uh, before we get into the busyness of the season, we've invited people to come on an evening and just take a pause and to rest and to sing and to pray and to remember our uh, our loved one that we've lost. And and just to have that moment to sort of pastorally walk through uh, some stuff. We have somebody share a testimony, a little story or something, Uh, just as a really significant way to help us as we enter into that season that can be dark and difficult for some people. Um, This year, we're going to do something very, very similar, but it's going to be a little different. I just want to talk to you briefly about that. It's called um, The Service of the Longest Night, and we're going to be holding it this Tuesday, uh, so December 5th at 6.30 p.m., right in this room. And we're still going to do something very similar. There's going to be singing and story, testimony. Um, there's, a, there's a poignant moment where we light a candle and that kind of thing in the service and, and so on. So it's going to be very similar. So if you have lost anyone this year, last year, five years ago, 35 years ago, and you want to come and remember that uh, individual and you want to just have a, a chance to just worship and be with people who love you and care for you, you are invited to do that. But we're opening it slightly wider this year to say, you know what, it isn't only people who are bereaved for whom Christmas can be tough. And so we just want to say, if you are experiencing loss in any kind of way, this is for you as well, and we want to invite you to come. So perhaps you haven't lost someone to death, but maybe you've lost a relationship, and it hurts, particularly this time of year. Maybe you've experienced some financial loss, and you're fearful or maybe you've uh, experienced loss in some other kind of way. I mean, I could list a hundred different ways in which you might be feeling that. So you're invited to come and it's always been a really significant evening and uh, it's coming this Tuesday, 6.30 p.m. right in here. And it isn't just for everybody seated here, but if you have coworkers or people in your uh, neighborhood or, or friends or family, member, invite them to come. They're all welcome to be here uh, to come for this service. So um, that's coming up uh, this Tuesday. Okay, so we are celebrating Advent today, the first Sunday of Advent, as was mentioned earlier, which is a season for us that we enter into before Christmas, on the run-up to Christmas, that is characterized by hoping and waiting and anticipating and looking for the first coming of Jesus, the birth of Christ, God incarnate, God taking on human flesh, to not just identify with humanity, but actually to become part of the human family in order to take up the broken human experiment and story, it's more than an experiment, I didn't mean to use that word, Uh, but the human story in order for us to move forward in a way that we can come back and be found again by God the Father. That's what we look forward to and look towards. Um, for our Advent teaching this series, so for today and the next uh, three Sundays, what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at Jesus, which is what Advent is all about, looking for and looking towards and hoping for Jesus, but we're going to look at him through the lens of an alliance distinctive because we think it's kind of interesting we don't talk about that very often. And so some of you in the room have been, you know, part of the Alliance, whether it's this Alliance Church or or others, and most recently this Alliance Church, for decades. Maybe you were from birth. Maybe you were born into sort of you know attending Alliance Church. For others of you, you've been in the Alliance Church for a number of years. And then some of you, you're brand new to the Alliance. And so we want to talk a little bit about. Uh, this Now, um, if you were to compare our statement of faith against some of our other, you know, brothers and sisters uh, out there, like, um, you know, Mennonite churches or Baptist churches or Pentecostal churches or whatever they are, if you were to compare our statement of faith, number one, and if, number two, you were, compare, you were to compare us with what others do on a Sunday morning, i.e., we sing and somebody like me preaches and we pray and, and so on, And thirdly, if you were to look at the ministries we have, children, youth, missions, seniors, small groups, and so on, all of that stuff wouldn't look actually terribly different to many of our sisters and brothers in other denominations. It wouldn't look all that uh, different, particularly evangelical churches. So there are many, many, many churches in our town that you could go to on a Sunday morning and it would feel pretty familiar to you. You'd be like, "Oh, oh, we sing that song. And, and, oh, yeah, yeah, a pastor gets up and preaches at our church as well. Oh, yeah, we have a youth group too. Like, it would all be pretty similar uh, to you. It isn't anything all that different. So the question is, so, so what exactly does it mean to be Alliance then? What's, what's the point of the Alliance Church? How is it different? And we could say a bunch of things about that, but one thing that we're going to say is that there is this distinctive in our theology called the fourfold gospel, and uh, we've already kind of mentioned it. It's up uh, behind me. You can see uh, up there. And, and our, our founder, A.B. Simpson, who founded the Alliance Church, uh, wrote a book called The Fourfold Gospel. So you can read it. And, and it is kind of like a, a paradigm, a picture through which we kind of look at Jesus, like a lens through which we look at Jesus. Now, um, I am not saying that other denominations somehow, you know, we have a corner on these four things, that other denominations don't agree with these things. They do. Now they may have slightly nuanced understandings of some of the things. Um, the four the four folds are this: savior, Jesus is savior; Jesus is sanctifier; Jesus is healer; and Jesus is coming king. Those are the kind of four things that we talk about in the fourfold gospel. They're the four folds, and, and so a lot of other denominations would say, "Well, yeah, we believe all that stuff too," um, and, and it's also true. Um, That I'm not saying to you that that these four things are the only things that the Alliance says are true about Jesus. That isn't true either. We say there's a lot of other things that are true about Jesus. All it is is a way of holding up some truths about Jesus that we have historically felt to be pretty important. So as we travel towards Christmas, we're going to look at these four distinctives as lenses through which we're going to talk about Jesus, saying that these four things are true and important about him as we uh, move towards celebrating him on Christmas morning, okay? So that's where we're going. That's what we're doing. That's what we're going to be talking about. So today we're talking about Jesus as Savior. Now, I assume that probably most people in the, in the room, so to some degree or other, follow news stories. I imagine most of you probably read the news maybe on your phone or maybe you watch it on TV or you listen to it on the radio or something. If that is you, then probably you've heard over the last couple of weeks, the news story about the 41 Indian men that were trapped in a tunnel in India. Has, is that familiar to you? Have most people heard about that? Okay, yeah, so most people have heard. and Maybe you just saw a couple of headlines, but maybe you've kind of read into it. For those who don't know much about what was happening, uh, there were 41 construction workers working inside a tunnel that they were constructing in northern India, way up by the Himalayas, and a landslide happened on that mountain and, and it kind of ran down, uh, ran down the side of the mountain and it ended up with 60 meters of debris that was actually blocking the entrance to the tunnel and the 41 men were in the tunnel. And it took two weeks to get them out because of the complexity of the rescue operation. It was not easy. It was loose debris. They had to be very careful. They were able to pass down just kind of oxygen and food and water and different things like that. Uh, to help them, but it took two weeks to actually uh, get them out. There is a picture that went viral uh, during this time, and the picture is a, of this 50 something year old Indian man who was outside the tunnel waiting to see if his son was going to be rescued, who was inside the tunnel. And when he finally greets his son there 's this picture of him holding his son 's head and kissing him on the forehead. and they just captured it. it 's a really poignant picture, and it went viral it 's a beautiful uh, beautiful picture. If you dig into that man's story, you will learn that his wife had to pawn all of her jewelry just to be able to buy a ticket for the, the husband, the father, to be able to travel north to be there. And they actually lost a son already to a construction accident in Mumbai. So you can imagine how they were feeling. Son number two is now trapped and we're scared. And so off he goes, and, and they get rescued, and all 41 uh, men uh, get out, and that's, that's great. When we hear stories like that that have a heartwarming en- ending, we usually talk about them, and the news stories talk about them in terms of rescue. They'll use the language of rescue. They might use the language of being saved, saving them from the tunnel. The narrative of rescue suggests that there is a rescuer or multiple rescuers. We might call them saviors, people who save others. We might, uh, the, 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 this idea rather of rescue, of salvation, of being a savior is absolutely central to the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ. And most of you who have been around church long enough know that to be true. So the first of the four folds of the gospel that we're going to look at is Jesus as Savior or Jesus as Rescuer? And we may know that and be very familiar with that, but it does beg the question, what exactly is he saving us from, though? And what is he saving us for and to? And, and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that. So if you have your Bible with you, we're going we're to turn to Revelation chapter 7, and I'm just going to read two verses, verses 9 and 10, and it will be on the screen for you as well. And this is what it says. This is the Apostle John. After this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes, and all peoples, and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. God's word to us today. That passage talks about how salvation, being a savior, being a rescuer, belongs to God And to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. It belongs to him. It's intrinsic to who he is. He owns it. He owns salvation is what it's talking about. Now, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you may know that the Apostle John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, he was one of the inner three, who became one of the leaders of the church, eventually, um, several decades after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, he actually becomes the Bishop of Ephesus, The Ephesian church that uh, Paul wrote to. Uh, So he becomes the bishop of Ephesus, but he eventually gets arrested by Roman soldiers. He gets taken to the prison island of Patmos, and there he's imprisoned. And uh, one, uh, one, one day on the Lord's Day, it says he was in the Spirit. So he was worshiping, he was caught up in the Spirit of Jesus on the Lord's Day, and all of a sudden he began to have these strange and bizarre visions. And an angel said to him, write them down, journal them. And he did. And he wrote them down. And what he wrote is collected for us in the book of Revelation. Those are the strange and bizarre visions that the apostle John had in the first century on the island of Patmos. And if you've ever read the book, you know that they are strange and they are bizarre, the visions. They're weird. Lots of of parts of the Bible are weird, but Revelation gets the prize. It's weird. It's weird. In the part of the vision that we are reading, chapter 7, John sees a great multitude that no one could count. He saw so many people, you couldn't even count them. And, and, And what's more, these people were of every skin color, and every eye color, and every hair color, they were from every nation of the world, every tribe, every tongue, all gathered together, robed in white, and they're singing and they're worshiping, Uh, to God who's seated on the throne, and they're worshiping uh, Jesus. And as they're worshiping, they make this declaration. They say, salvation belongs to the God that we're worshiping, who's seated on this throne, and belongs to the Lamb. In the midst of their worship, church family, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this, way before the Roman Empire was ever a thing, way before the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great, way before the Persian Empire, way before the Babylonian Empire, way before the Assyrian Empire, back, back, back in history to Israel's prehistory, God made a covenant with Abraham, and he essentially said to him, your descendants are going to be so many, you won't be able to count them. In fact, there's going to be so many of them, it's going to be like the stars in the sky. Nobody can count how many stars there are in the sky. There's going to be so many of them, it's going to be like the number of grains of sand on a beach. No one can count the number of grains on a beach. Have a go at it. You won't get very far. There's going to be so many of them. So what John is seeing hundreds of years later, under the power of the Roman Empire, as he's been arrested and thrown onto Patmos Island, he's probably in his 80s at this time, What he's seeing is the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenantal promise to Abraham, a great multitude that no one could count. God is faithful to his promises. The visions that John saw on the island of Patmos, so the book of Revelation, were in a large part A way of helping persecuted Christians to cope with what they were going through. Many people think that the book of Revelation was written to give us a blueprint of how the end is going to work out. That is not what it's for. It says a lot about the end, of course it does, absolutely, but it was not written as a blueprint. It was written as an encouragement to persecuted Christians because there were many, many communities of faith in Ephesus, in Pergamum, in Thyatira, in Colossae in Jerusalem, you know, in in Corinth, in Philippi, all of these churches have been planted, many of them who were being harassed and excluded and imprisoned and killed and persecuted. And John's pastoral heart is, I want to help. And the spirit is like, well, I want to help too. So here's these visions, write and send these messages to the churches to encourage them. So the book of Revelation is, is essentially... Peeling back the curtain that separates what's happening here on earth with what's going on in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realm, in God's realm of existence, so that the faithful can peer through for a moment and see that there's a whole new reality. That's what the book of Revelation is about. And what was going on, what was really going on in that realm of existence, was that number one, God was in control whether it looked like it on earth or felt like it on earth or not. Satan was being defeated, whether it looked like it did on earth or not. The beastly empires were being judged, so Rome was gonna be judged. There's a lot of talk about beastly empires in the book of Revelation. You see them in the book of Daniel as well. And so beastly empires today are, are being judged and will be defeated. This is what's going on in the spiritual realm outside of our existence Uh, the lake of fire is the ultimate destination for evil and evildoers the new heavens and the new earth that's going to come down out of heaven and the great crowd the great multitude that we just read about those are the 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 hopes for humanity and not just wispy hopes but the concrete reality of what's coming for the faithful right? This is, this is what the book of Revelation was about. So therefore, as you are persecuted, stand firm because you know it's not the end. You know this is not the sum total of your experience. Actually, something more important is going on in the heavenlies and God wins and you win. Hallelujah. So be faithful. Stand up. Be strong. It's only temporary. Evil will be defeated. I once heard a, a, a brother from, from China who was um, describing some of the terrible persecution uh, that the church has faced over the years there. And you know what his prayer request was? His prayer request was not, oh, pray that the persecution goes away. It was pray that the church would have an iron strong back to stand up under it. That was his prayer request. Interesting. So the book of Revelation is largely a word of encouragement for the faithful as they live in the midst of their nightmare to know that a greater and more perfect reality actually exists. And for Jewish background believers... Uh, The great multitude that could not be counted was clearly, as I've already said, a reference to God's faithfulness, to his promises and his covenant. So if God was faithful there, then he's going to be faithful to get you out of your mess. He's going to save you and rescue you out of the tunnel that you find yourself trapped in with all of its threats to your life and your well-being into a glorious reality. Thus, salvation, savior, rescue belongs to God. And so, to you, church family, friends, in 2023, the Lord. if we had the capacity to pull back the curtain, if I had the power to pull back the curtain for you on this stage right now, so you could peer into the spiritual realm, we would see that there is a reality that exists that we just don't perceive nor think about enough that is more wonderful than we can ever imagine. And so for whatever it is that you're going through today, whatever pain you're experiencing, whatever disappointment or sadness or bereavement or rejection or anguish, whatever fear it is that you're feeling, whatever temptation is assailing you, whatever loneliness you have, whatever depression you're going through, whatever physical pain you're experiencing or whatever life-threatening illness has taken a hold of your body, let me tell you that there is a reality that is more real. And I don't say that to diminish anybody's experience at all. I'm not saying that what your experience is not somehow real, but what I'm saying is uh, uh, that there is a reality that is more real. And here's how it's more real. This is my arm, and if one of you were to come up and, and, and try to grab my arm like that, I can guarantee you, your hand wouldn't go through my arm as though I'm some kind of ghostly apparition. Like You would actually feel my arm. And you'd be like, it, it's warm, and I'd like, I know, it's good, there's blood flowing through it. I'm, I'm glad it's warm. And, 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 and you, if you kind of did this, you'd feel that there's bones inside there. And, and if you held it and, and I did this, you'd feel that there's, there's muscle contracting in it, not a lot of muscle, but there's a bit. Um, <laughs> Contracting and, and so on. You, you'd be able to feel it, though it does move. Um, so that's my arm. It's real, it's very real, except it is not as real as the reality that exists in the, in, in the spiritual realm in the sense that what that is is eternal. What my arm is is not eternal. The day will come where this arm will decay and there will be no skin or flesh left on it anymore, and it will just be bone. And the only way it will move is if somebody else picks it up. So my arm is not eternal. So in that sense, what's happening is more real than my arm because it's eternal. And it does not decay. And it will never decay. So whatever it is that we're experiencing, friends, there's something more real. And that ought to not diminish what we're experiencing, but it actually ought to help us walk through what we're experiencing. So Jesus, our Savior, salvation belongs to him. Revelation 7 isn't the only place that talks uh, of a Savior. So really quickly, I'm just going to burn through a few other verses. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. Titus 3, 4 and 5, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works of righteousness we had done. Acts 4, 2, there is salvation in no one else. Because there's no other name under heaven by which mortals will be saved. Uh, Romans 10.9, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the Bible even tells us how to be saved. And and on and on and on we could go uh, with more and more. But I just wanted to run through those to show you that Revelation 7 isn't the only place it refers to Salvation and Savior. So it begs the question if Jesus is the rescuer, the Savior, what are we rescued from? Well, man, I could spend hours telling you this. Uh, we don't have hours, so we're just going to say a few things. But um, what we are saved from is our own fallenness and brokenness, and sinfulness and disconnection from God. Because here's the deal no matter what culture tells you, or, or even embarrassed Christians don't really want to tell you, left to ourselves with no God involvement at all, left to ourselves, humans cannot rescue themselves from the punishment that sin deserves. You can't do anything, and nor can I. It's like this universal law in the world. Societies all over our world, both ancient ones And and, and modern ones do express that there is something as right and wrong, even if it's blurring these days, and that there is chaos and order, and and there's different ways in which those have been understood, and and of course, there's autocratic leaders that sometimes push against uh, that kind of thing, but there is this kind of sense that there's right and wrong, and because all of us fall short of the goodness and the glorious nature of God himself— that's what Romans talks about. We all fall short of his glory. What it means is uh, sin uh, means missing the mark. It's like taking a shot with an arrow and missing the mark. We all miss the mark. We don't get a bullseye, not one of us. And what that means is that ultimately we cannot dwell in the presence of a perfect and loving God. And holy God, so left to ourselves, we will not get to enjoy the perfect union with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, in paradise where every tear is wiped away and every brokenness is fixed. That is that is not possible for us. The Bible, instead, and that's what the Bible when the Bible talks about heaven, that's what it's talking about. The Bible actually describes an alternate reality that sometimes we don't talk about very often. That is an existence disconnected from that paradise where we experience only the wrath of God against sin, and the Bible calls it hell. So, as our Savior, that is what Jesus ultimately saves us from. Jesus saves us and rescues us from that dark reality and grants us access instead to that incredible paradise. It's the best deal in the world. And it's made possible because of the cross of Jesus, our Savior, taking on the punishment on himself and giving us a free pass. That's what Romans 10 was all about. We have to appropriate it by faith. We have to turn away from our sin. We have to confess with our mouths that he's Lord. And we have to believe in our heart that he's raised us from the dead. That's why we get people to give testimonies at baptism's time, because confessing with your lips publicly is really important. And so if we respond to faith in Jesus, the blood of Christ covers us from sin and we get freedom. So Christ, our savior, our rescuer, saves us from fallenness and sinfulness, which in turn saves us from that dark reality that we're all on the path towards. He saves us from the stain of sin, from the guilt and shame that is associated with our sin, from the curse of the law. He frees us from the fear of death We get saved and delivered from Satan's power, from the kingdom of darkness. I could keep going. But that's reality. That's truth. But what do we get saved to or for? Well, I've already mentioned that salvation brings you access to the eternal God in a future sense. That is, when you die or when Jesus returns, whichever comes first, you will get access to a paradise you cannot even imagine, where there will be no tears and no pain and no hurt and no temptation, nothing remotely negative. And ultimately, you will get a new and perfect and imperishable body. And most people in the room said, Amen. (laughs) But if that wasn't enough... You also get access to God now. You get to fellowship with God now. You get to walk with Him. You get to pray to the God of the universe. You get to be quiet and listen to His voice. You get to engage with Him and walk with Him daily. And so many Christians just take that for granted. It's incredible. It's the best thing ever. Salvation brings you forgiveness of the worst things that you've ever done. Get blotted out as you yield yourself to Him and ask His forgiveness and repent of your wrongdoing. And you walk in a confessional lifestyle, and and not only forgiveness in an objective sense, but also in the subjective felt sense of being cleansed of all unrighteousness. You get forgiven, and you get cleansed. It's a good deal. You get justified before God. Imagine being in a law court setting where you're in the dark, and you know you are as guilty as anything. And you get the most remarkable and surprising, not guilty verdict, and you walk out free. You get justified before God. Salvation brings you adoption into the family of God. You get received into the arms of the Father. For people who have only ever experienced rejection, all you're going to get is acceptance and value Salvation brings you a new heart. You actually get regenerated. You get made completely new. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit not only acts as a, a pledge and seal marking you for redemption, but He actually comes into you and lives within you, dynamically changing you. We could go on and on and on about the subject of Christ as Savior, but we need to get to communion uh, today, and I need to, I need to calm down. Um, but Christ as, as, as saviour is arguably the most important and central part of who he is in his mission, and the reason Jesus was born into humanity that we're going to get to experience uh, soon, as we get liberated from the tunnel that we're trapped in. And it's the best news you'll hear in your lifetime, and I mean that. I'm not just a religious professional peddling some something. So how does somebody get saved? Well, there's two parts to conversion. There's repentance and faith. Firstly, you have to repent. You have to ask God to forgive you. But it's more than just asking God to forgive you. It's actually also a 180 orientation turn away from a a sinful lifestyle, away from self-reliance, away from I'm the Lord of my own life, and it's actually a liberation from all of that, and it's a turning towards. And as you repent, then the positive side of conversion is then, and I appropriate with faith as I turn away from being the Lord of my own life, then I grasp a hold of Jesus and all of his promises in faith. Repentance and faith. And as you do that, what happens is you receive the gift of the Spirit that gets deposited on you, and you get pledged and marked for salvation, that when God looks at you, his judgment is going to pass over you. That's what the Passover is all about in Exodus, in case you didn't know. It's going to pass over you, and you take hold of him as your follower. And the redemption has been paid. The work of Christ that happened 2,000 years ago on the cross gets activated within you. It's like it gets switched on within your heart. It gets applied to you, and you get justified and regenerated and adopted into the family Of God, so before we go to the communion table this morning, I would like to just pray, and I'd like to pray a a prayer of salvation this morning because there may be people in here who have been coming to church for a while or get invited today who, who have never actually prayed to receive Jesus. And uh, let me tell you this, and this is true: there are hundreds of thousands of people, churchgoers in North America who are not saved. They have come to church for maybe decades because they like the songs and they like the community and they have belief and they like the preaching and they think it's moral and it's good and all of those kind of things, but they haven't actually appropriated personally. And maybe that's you. And the spirit is going to touch you today and say, no, you need to make actually a commitment. So I'm going to pray for you And as I pray, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to make my prayer your prayer. And also, for those who say, but actually, I am saved, I have done this before, but maybe you've had months, years, decades of, of, of kind of drifting, and you want to make a recommitment to faith. That's okay to do as well. You can do that. Again, saying, Jesus, I want to make you center. And for the rest of you in the room who say, I don't need to do either of those two things, you get to pray as well because there's no such thing as a passive person this morning. We're a priesthood of believers, so you have a priestly role that if you're not praying for yourself, you're praying for the other people in the room. That's your priestly role. It's not, I'm not doing all the work today. You're doing it too, because you are priests of the living God. So everybody in this room has a role this morning. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning with eternal thankfulness in our hearts for what you have done. And now, O God, in the name of Jesus Christ, I repent of my sin and I ask that you would forgive me of every stray thought, every stray word and every stray action. I confess my sin to you and ask that you would forgive me and cleanse me of all that unrighteousness. Make me this morning white as snow And I stand on your word because your word says you will do it. And Father, I also want to turn towards Jesus and I appropriate by faith, I grab a hold of the hem of his garment, never to again let go. I hold on to Jesus and all that he has done for me. And by faith, I receive Jesus today. And I ask that he would come into me by the spirit, marking me, and sealing me for redemption, that I will go to heaven and be with you forever. And that I stand in faith knowing I have just been regenerated in my heart. I have been justified before you. I have now been adopted into the family. I have a new family and a new father. And I receive it with thankfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 If you prayed that prayer this morning, and I recognize that, that was a really quick prayer, maybe you need to go home this afternoon and re-pray it. It's easy, repentance and faith. And maybe you need to re-pray it and actually list some of the sinful, because you want to actually list some things, and you don't have time this morning when I prayed so quickly. Maybe you want to go and do that. But if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to invite you to, just to tell somebody. Because there is a parable, I don't have time to go into, but there's a parable in the New Testament where, um, where the enemy will just come and snatch away what's just happened. The enemy will actually try to snatch it away and say, oh, you were just listening to some you know, religious freak on a stage. Um, uh, I may be that, but... Um, but I'll actually try to snatch and say, what you did wasn't real. It didn't actually happen. It it happened for other people, but not for you. Like There's all these kind of lies that then come by telling someone else. You're inviting someone else into that journey to pray with you, to walk with you, to help disciple you and help you move forward. So tell someone, a friend, uh, somebody you came with, tell a pastor if you like, whatever you want to do. So we're going to take communion. And I'm going to invite you to carefully uh, peel back the elements to take the wafer and to carefully pull back the pink foil uh, for the juice. And maybe for one or two of you in the room, this has the most incredible significance because you are now going to ingest something that is a picture of what you just did as you receive the body and the blood of Jesus. So let me read the scriptures. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he gave him thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. All who know him, let's eat together. In the same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes so all together we're going to proclaim his death as we drink together well who know him I'm gonna invite the worship team, as they come up, let me pray. Father, I wanna thank you so much for the incredible gift of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I thank you that, while it didn't cost us very much, this redemption that we've been talking about, this salvation cost you everything. And so we stand in thankfulness and in awe of what you have done. I pray, Lord Jesus, as we've taken these elements, that they would indeed spiritually nourish us as they go into our bodies, as we ingest the markers here of the, of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, we receive it into ourselves. And so for those of us who have received Jesus for the first time or have received him afresh and as a recommitment, I pray now that we would go nourished to live for you, to follow you in discipleship and that we would be protected from the enemy who would want to take away what has happened. And so we say no, in Jesus' name. Amen.